Welcome to the Maidan Podcast. I'm Maria Daycake, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at George Mason University. And my guest today is Dr. Katrin Joma. Dr. Joma's interdisciplinary research interests encompass classical and modern political philosophy, as well as Islamic thought and chronic exegesis, specifically focusing on the relationship between religion and politics in the Middle East. Her research methods employ analysis of Islamic primary sources to explore key concepts which can be used in constructing modern Islamic political theory. In 2013, Dr. Joma joined the University of Rhode Island as an assistant professor with a joint appointment in the departments of political science and philosophy. Besides her interests in the humanities, Dr. Joma has a dual passion for science and technology. She has a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the American University in Cairo and a master's degree in applied material science from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Her scientific background has informed her study of religion and politics as she employs structural analysis to the understanding of religious texts and political events. Dr. Joma will be talking with us today about her recent book, Ummah, A New Paradigm for a Global World, published by SUNY Press in 2022. Welcome, Katrin. So I read your book, um, Oma, A New Paradigm for a Global World, um, earlier in manuscript form, as you know, and I just reread the finished version again, and I, I enjoyed it very much. This book and your work um, lies at the intersection of religion and politics in the Middle East and the Islamic world. But what really struck me is how different your approach to this subject is from most of the scholarly treatments we see uh, regarding religion and politics, or especially Islam and politics. Most works on Islamic and politics are concerned with talking about um, the religious bases of authority or of legitimacy or of the role of Sharia uh, in politics or in the state, um, sectarian politics or contemporary political conflicts. But in many ways, uh, your book uh, takes a very different approach. You only touch very lightly on issues of authority or uh, issues of the role of the Sharia in the state. Um, You really transcend sectarian politics by considering the thought of both Sunni and Shi thinkers, um, both both classical and modern. Um, and you generally avoid talking about contemporary politics. <laughs> um, your book is really an examination of Islamic Islamic political theory, uh, not as regards authority and leadership so much, but with regard to the community itself, uh, the ummah. And as I read your book, uh, you describe the Ummah as uh, not only a political community, but a moral community, ideally a self-selecting, in its ideal form, a self-selecting and voluntary uh, community. So I wanted to ask you, what led you to focus on this concept of the Ummah and to approach it in this particular way? Well, first of all, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to have this talk. I'm really happy that I have the opportunity to talk about my book. So I really appreciate that. 
And you're right. Uh, when I thought about doing the work, I thought that I want to uh, sort of move in a different direction because most of the work in Islamic studies is either descriptive, like they describe previous scholarly, uh, you know, opinions and ideas about the state, about political legitimacy, or uh, sometimes it's critical of the current, uh, you know, systems or and the nation state. Sometimes it's apologetic. So I wanted to sort of move beyond those uh, approaches and I would say cut the chase and move directly into the primary sources mm-hmm. and look for answers. I was interested in searching for answers to the problems that we're facing today. Mm-hmm. The problems that we're facing today as a modern nation state, whether we're talking about the Western modern nation state, that's like problems in the West, and also problems of the um, colonizing nation state that was established by colonial powers in the Middle East. So I was more interested in in, in searching for answers. And this is why I, I looked for the, the primary sources. Um, I wanted also to move beyond state-centric approach, which is usually the approach of the obsession of modern politics. Modern politics are obsessed with the nation state. They're all state-centric. So I wanted to also do something that is not state-centric, that is not obsessed with sovereignty and being state-centric. The Ummah is, is very special as, as a concept uh, in Islam, in the Qur'an, in Islamic history. I think it's a major contribution of Islamic thought. And I thought that it needs our attention, like more attention, more understanding of what the Ummah means and how can we activate it and realize it and manifest it in better ways in our contemporary world and what significance it would have not only to Muslims, but also to the world in general. Because when we talk about the Quran, the Quran is not just about Muslims. It's also for the world. It's not talking to Muslims only, it's talking to everyone. And there are moral and ethical values that everybody can benefit from. Another thing that I was also interested in is the field of Islamic political philosophy or Islamic political theory. Unfortunately, despite all the advances that, you know, uh, Muslims have done during Islamic history in all the sciences, specifically that field was not really developed, apart from Al-Farabi and very few thinkers who have, you know, addressed this field. So I thought, like, how can we, you know, address that and add to that and actually start doing Islamic political philosophy or, you know, writing, not just saying that we have a gap in this field, but actually doing it, you know, engaging in Islamic political philosophy. So that was also one of my, you know, intentions and my goals is that let me start an amateur start, a a beginning, you know, just like working on engaging literally with Islamic political philosophy. Right. And I, um, so much of that is really fascinating and I think incredibly important to the field. Uh, just the idea that the political, first of all, that the political theory doesn't have to be tied to the paradigm of the state, mm-hmm. which is, as you know, something that people are starting to talk about and to, um, and to think about 
mm-hmm. globally today? What is the role of the state? Is this uh, something, is this a, um, a mode of political organization that is inevitable at this point um, or is it not? What are the problems that it causes and how can they be addressed? And you're really saying one of the ways to, to do this is to look at this very unique uh, Islamic chronic concept of the ummah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to look at it not only as a way of solving issues that Muslims have with uh, the state, uh, but um, with the idea of the state in general, same mm-hmm. problems that are facing the West. And I, I think that's um, that's really fascinating. Um, and, and so what do you, th- I mean, that's what I take away from the book. When you wrote the book, what do you think is the most important or some of the most important ideas that you would like readers, not just readers in Islamic studies, but potentially readers in other fields or people who might encounter these ideas in political science beyond the specialization of Islamic studies, uh, what would you like for them to take from this uh, from this book and from your study of the Ummah? Or maybe another way to put it would be, what is it in the Islamic concept of the Ummah that you see as being able to contribute even beyond the, uh, a Muslim context to some of the political issues that, uh, that we face today? Mm-hmm. I think one major contribution would be the value and the agency of the human being. That the human being as an individual is not only about taking or having rights, but also about giving back and it's a responsible human being. Mm -hmm. Somebody who needs to manifest his or her life in practice, in public, in the politics, in a healthy way. Not just a consumer. The human being in the Quran is a khalifa, is a vicegerent of God on earth. Somebody who's endowed with, who's given lots of rights and given lots of qualities and given freedom and given reason and given the senses and given the world, you know, to to explore and discover, but is also charged with a duty, you know, also has a responsibility towards himself, herself and the community and the world that they live in. So the human being is active, is proactive, is a major contributor to their societies to the politics and to the world. I think this is one major uh, thing that I hope that the book is is giving. And in that regard, this will affect how the state is run, how politics are done, how the government is run. How do we understand diversity in that context? What is our responsibility also towards that diverse population? What is our responsibility towards the law and towards people who make the law? How do we understand Sharia within that context? Uh, so, I think that's that would be my my major contribution. Also, the understanding of or the practice of legal pluralism, that people, when they perceive themselves as a whole, not just as somebody who is uh, private, uh, like different in the private from the public. You know, there's this kind of. A dichotomy between the public and the private. You have to manifest yourself in public in a certain way, and your private life has to be only in your private life. No. When you see yourself as a whole, as private and public, as a totality, how do you act when you see yourself as a whole? 
what does this require from within a legal system, within a political system, if we see we're ourselves as whole? You know what I'm talking about? Not as dichotomous people, as people who are acting differently in different situations. Mm-hmm. Um, this requires a change in the political and legal system. And I'm proposing that legal pluralism is a very healthy thing when we have multicultural societies mm-hmm. and when we have diversity, when we have pluralism, that that this can also solve lots of problems, problems of minorities, of people who, who feel alienated from this big system that's imposed on them. So that's another thing that I also, that's, I'm just uh, thinking like, you know, mm-hmm. off of my head, what I think would be uh, contributions. Yes, wonderful. And the the idea of Khalifa that you mentioned too, uh, the beginning of your, of your comments there is really fascinating because we think of Khalifa, of course, primarily as the caliph, right? As yes. the official Islamic form of authority or the ideal Islamic form of authority that's established right after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. And there's uh, lots of talk about the loss of the caliphate and, of course, desires um, to restore the caliphate or what would the caliphate mean today and so on. But what you're saying is really when the Quran talks about Khalifa, it's talking about every single individual human being as a Khalifa, Mm -hmm. which puts the focus back on, as you said, human agency, the individual human agency in creating the the society. So when we think of in a statist model, we naturally think of of authority. We think of the person who is in charge or the the, uh, structures that are in charge But this is really a kind of bottom-up understanding that actually every single um, human being within the society has not only agency but responsibility and therefore a certain amount uh, of authority or contribution to the the authority of how the society um, is run. And so first of all, I think that's that's a really important point is to rethink this idea of what Khalifa means it's it's been rethought uh, it's being rethought I should say right now in terms of Islamic environmental ethics for example what does it mean that the human being is a Khalifa fil ard right a, a Khalifa on the earth do they each individual has a responsibility for caring for the earth and for the environment but you're talking about it within the context of political theory specifically uh, and rethinking the idea of the state. So I have a, a couple of questions, maybe a sort of follow-up questions about that. If you were to talk to a person living in, born and raised in um, a completely Western uh, model of the state, they would say that human agency is enabled by the modern state, modern democratic state, right? There's, of course, the idea of citizenship, uh, there's democracy, there's voting, there's citizen participation at various levels uh, and representation uh, in the government. There's uh, 
sort of civil society that uh, people participate in that that's important. How is how would this idea of Khalifa, however, or this more Islamic notion of human agency in society, what would it add to or how would it change those sort of secular Western statist understandings of um, human uh, participation, responsibility for their society and their the governing of their society. Okay, yeah, I think that the modern nation state already gives some um, agency, even if it's sometimes illusionary. It's not real, but at least it it provides that rhetoric, you know, that ideal. And by allowing people specific venues to act, such as voting or elect election. You know, people feel like, oh, I'm doing something. Um, however, it's very confined. That's one thing. And limited. And people feel, um, and it's also localized. So now we have a problem with the environment because people, when they think of themselves, when I think of them myself, I think, for example, I'm a citizen of America. I'm just limited to America. Right. I want the best for America, but I don't care about what's happening to the rest of the world. It's more it's a narrowed vision. It's limited and it's confined. I think the idea of the Khalifa being Khalifa the vicegerent of God on earth, it opens up the horizon of how you perceive yourself. And then when you're proactive, it's not only about the nation that you're living in, but more about the world. Another point is the absence of a common good. In the modern nation state, the idea of a common good is not really prevalent anymore. So when somebody are thinking of being active or proactive, they're usually thinking about their interest. What my interest is, right? Versus against somebody else. Or that's my political party against that political party. My end goal is I want my interest to win. It's a very competitive atmosphere that is resonating with the capitalist um, market and competition within a capitalist market. So you're also confined to your own narrow world and your own narrow vision and narrow interests. And sometimes this, what you want to achieve, contradicts somebody else's interests. This is why you have the stronger nations are feeding off the weaker nations. This is why you have nations that are thriving economically and all of that, and other nations are dying out of hunger and out of poverty and out of lot of lots of problems. And then when within the nation state, even within the nation states, you have the political elite or the majority. They're doing, you know, they're having the laws that work for the majority and do not work for the minorities. So even within the nation state, you also have the same kind of, 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 of that defect. So when we talk about the Khalifa, it's not only about me. It's not just about my interest and I don't care about the rest of the world. No, it's about me and the rest of the world. It's about me and my neighbor. It's about me and what I consider a minority. And the concept of minority, by, by the way, in Islamic thought, I, so far from my research, I did not find it. I didn't find it there. Mm-hmm. The Medina constitution, for example, the Muslims were a minority mm-hmm. and the, the Jews were a majority. But you don't see that term used. You don't see that numbers or that idea, that ideology used. 
Because just saying a majority and a minority, you're already implying just by the naming of it, you're already implying a difference. Just name, you know, just the minority, it already says something is less, you know. So I ha- I didn't see that in the Medina Constitution, which is a pluralistic society. And I think that's healthy because you don't want to conceive of yourself or perceive yourself as a minority. You want to perceive yourself as a citizen who's not minor in any way or any form, whether it's skin color, whether it's the language, whether it's the race. No, you perceive yourself as a khalifa, as somebody who has a, who's complete, who's whole, irrespective of the number, and who has a full contribution to the society that he or she lives in. So seeing yourself as, 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 as a Khalifa of Allah, as, as a creature of God, as somebody who's endowed with all these, you know, virtues and all these qualities and a major contributor is not about just you or your, you know, narrow private interest, but it's also about a common good and something bigger than you. I would say bigger than you and bigger than the particular group that you affiliate with, exactly. right? Exactly. Which is, I think, one of the, the lessons that you draw and, and perhaps others have drawn from the Medinan constitution that you talk about. And I want to talk about that um, in in a minute. Uh, I just want to... Maria, just yes. I didn't want to yes. talk to you. Not only the Medinan constitution, but also in the Quran. Yes. Because for some people, they say, oh, the Medinan constitution is controversial. We're not sure it actually existed. We're not sure, you know, why this and this and that. So look, that's why I started with the Quran, because the Quran is here. It's the same word for word and letter for letter. And it also talks about, you know, there are verses that talk about this pluralism Mm -hmm. and this contribution. So even if you're going to discredit the Medina Constitution as a historical treaty that may be controversial some way or another, which I don't go by that opinion, but even if you want to do that, the Quran actually talks about the Khalifa in that way. Right. And I um, should also mention uh, for, our viewer, for our listeners uh, that, uh, that Katrin, in addition to writing this book, is also a contributor to the uh, Islamic th- uh, Moral Theology and the Future Project, which is supported by the John Templeton Foundation um, and is something that I have been leading along with my colleague, uh, Dr. Martin Nguyen from Fairfield University. And Katrin has been one of the contributors to that project. And I had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with her at a conference related to that project a a couple of months ago. And so I wanted to, uh, in in her contribution, uh, in your contribution, Katrin, to that project, you wrote an essay for us that talked about this idea of the common good. Mm -hmm. And I think that is perhaps a really important intervention that an Islamic moral theology of the community uh, or a political theology of the community can contribute. Because, of course, the modern Western secular concept of the citizen is often as a consumer, as someone with particular a particular set of rights uh, that can expect a certain level of 
of service from the state, as opposed to a more holistic idea of a contributor to the state. And of course, in a democracy, in a representative democracy, there is the conception that people participate. Uh, But I think people often feel very alienated from that, um, despite their uh, ability to vote or to select their representatives or to participate in various ways in civil society or in the political process. So this idea of the common good, I was wondering if maybe you could expand just a little bit more uh, about this idea of the common good and how it connects to the idea of human agency. Yeah, so what I wrote in the in the project was about how how despite our differences, we can come together and think of a common good, the Quranic paradigm. And this is something that I was actually hoping I was going to talk about as the, you know, the, the, the future study that I want to do. So it needs much more studying and much more work. But just as sort of an introduction or uh, a simplistic idea that I got from the Quran about the common good is that when people feel that they are connected uh, by just the mere fact of they're being created by a common God, just one God created all of us and created the world, this brings uh, back a kind of a, um, a basic connection or a common ground that people can go and refer to, even if they are different in religion or different in ethnicity or in race. So there's there should be something that people have to resort to in order to feel that kind of contribution and not be alienated. So, for example, if let's say somebody from the Middle East or uh, Middle Eastern origin or Mexican origin or Hispanic origin is living in the United States and they feel that their vote will not count, or they feel that they don't want to participate in the political system because I asked this question in my classes, like, why do you feel this way? They say, because we feel that it's not going to count. It's not going to make a difference or because the, you know, the, the general, the lawmakers do not care about my needs. So they won't listen to what I want. So here again, they feel alienated because of the absence of this commonality. The state by itself is not enough to maintain and sustain that common bond. There needs to be much more than that. So having, uh, and, and, and if we're going to go beyond ethics and race and religion, having one God is, is that commonality that the Quran is calling for. Another thing is having an I uh, sort of a culture of mutual reciprocity that you know I should care because I have the common God or I have one God or we have the same common creator and we have a common destiny, we have a shared destiny, we have a common place that we live in, it's the same earth that we live in. I have a responsibility towards my neighbor. So also having that feeling drives or motivates people, to care about the other or contribute to this, you know, shared destiny that we all share. Yes, there thank is, you. And I, and I, I'm sorry. Did you want to continue? Yeah, there is the uh, there is the Quranic verse that actually caught my attention, which talks about, um, um, let's say, uh, 
somebody is talking to somebody else and telling them, why do you keep advising people that God is going to ruin? Okay. And the, and the person answers, I'm advising them because maybe, you know, they will change one day. Right. And because, you know, this is a kind of a responsibility that I have. So I think the verse alludes to the idea that all having something in common creates that sense of responsibility towards the other or care or compassion towards the other. Even if apparently you think that they're doomed or they're not going to survive or, you know, they're completely different from you, you still have, if you have this commonality, you will have that kind of care and compassion, which are very important for a healthy society. So that's what I got from the verse. But I think this idea of common good is, is huge, is big. And it needs a lot of study. I think it's something that, you know, needs more work. And I'm hoping to work on it in the future. Well, we certainly look forward to that. And I would say that uh, just maybe following up on some of your, uh, the points that you just made, of course, yes, that uh, verse from the Quran about people warning other people, even though they seem to be not receptive uh, to the warnings, but even if they're not receptive, it's still your responsibility to, to offer those Warnings, and I think about, of course, the chronic principle of Amr bil Ma'ruf Nahyal Munkar, which is a uh, um, commanding the good and forbidding the wrong, which is a responsibility that's that we would normally associate with state authority. Um, but in reality, the Quran gives this authority uh, to the Prophet, of course, but also to every individual within the Ummah, mm-hmm. uh, everyone in the Ummah. And yes. it's in, it's it's very explicitly male and female, mu'minu and the mu'minat. But this responsibility really is a responsibility that falls upon every individual to take care, to not only contribute to the common good, but to c- take care of, um, to look out for uh, the well-being of all of those other people around you in your community. And something else you said really struck me when you talked about this idea of a shared destiny, um, that we all live on this earth, uh, we have something in common. And it brings me back to the Medinan constitution again, because of course the Medinan constitution, maybe we should just back up for a minute, of course, um, a document that even though there's some controversy about it, generally is considered by scholars to be a, a fairly authentic document. True from the lifetime of the prophet mm-hmm. Muhammad. Um, and it outlines the general organization and principles for how this now multi-ethnic, multi-religious society that had been created when the prophet and his followers emigrated to Medina, how this was going to be governed. Cause you had uh, Jewish uh, clans, you had Muslims, you had native Muslims from Medina, you had Muslims that had emigrated from Mecca, you had uh, some people who uh, it seems uh, may have still been polytheists. Uh, so it was a community with multiple uh, way, yeah, multiple religious groups, multiple ethnic groups. And it was uh, a way of trying to organize peacefully the relationships between them. And one of the although it allowed a certain amount of autonomy for each community to govern themselves is maybe what you're talking about with legal pluralism, right? Allowing Mm -hmm. each community to govern their own affairs. Mm -hmm. 
but also recognizing that as fellow residents of this one particular city, uh, Yathrib, or later uh, renamed Medina, they had a certain responsibility to that land, to that city, to yes. that space, and to all of the residents within that space. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I'm suddenly when you when you talked about that, I suddenly realized that this can be applied on a kind of macro scale in the globalized world in which we live today. Of course, Medina was a small city, yeah. but um, but in a sense. If we're looking at this globally, if we're looking at this across uh, human society, we all share this earth. Yeah. And so can that notion of a, uh, a commitment to one another and to the environment in which we live as a moral um, uh, principle that transcends differences in religion, differences in race, differences in ethnicity, differences in language, and doesn't really consider whether individual groups are majorities or minorities. It's sort of, you know, these are the concepts in which people think today politically, but this idea that comes out of the Quran, that comes out of the Medinan constitution, these uh, really early Islamic sources do hold keys for getting beyond some of these habits of thinking that we have in the modern world that sometimes impede our ability to work together cooperatively. Definitely. And I also wanted to add something uh, from what you, what you previously said about Al-Amr bil-Maruf and Nahi an al-Munkar, which is... I mean, I would say fortunately or unfortunately, it's it was limited to the political uh, world, specific people doing that. However, when we look at the Quran, actually what distinguishes the Muslim ummah specifically from the rest of the ummah is that action. That the Muslim ummah, God says in the Quran, the Muslim ummah were the best ummah ever raised for mankind. Why? Because they command justice or righteousness and they deter wrongness. And believe in one God. So if the rest of the world, let's say, want to learn something from this Muslim ummah, is that's what they can learn from the Muslim ummah, is that when they see them, that that's what they do. This, this act of, of continuous reform that should invigorate a healthy society. Unfortunately, the Muslim Ummah is not doing this today. Unfortunately, we're fighting based on differences in sects, differences now in nations and in language. There is a lot of, you know, um, chaos going on among the Muslims today. And I think this is happening because they forgot and they deserted this idea that what is special about you, what is significant about you as a Muslim Ummah, is that you have this, actually, I wouldn't call it only a duty, you have this privilege that if you actually, you know, make it happen, if you practice it, not only you'll benefit yourself, but the rest of the world will look at you and say, wow, look, they're doing very well. Why don't we do that too? You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Because, because even, obviously, it comes together 
بيأمرونا بالمعروف وينهون عن المنكر ويؤمنون بالله they command righteousness deter wrongness and believe in God it's like a whole package and some people would say oh but some people are atheists they don't believe in God some people are atheists they don't believe in God but they they like doing good you know so I mean there is there is there is a lesson there and in in, in this practice it's there's so much to gain from it But unfortunately, the Muslims are not doing it today because the Ummah is actually divided today. They're not united. They're not thinking in this paradigm. We're thinking today as Muslims from a nation-state perspective. We're divided over, even we, we speak the same language, look at the Arab world, but we're divided, you know, like Egypt, Lebanon, you know, Syria. We're not thinking in that paradigm, and this is why it's not activated today. But if it, if it was activated, it would be benefit for Muslims and for the rest of the world. Yes. Wonderful. Well, let me, let me follow up with that, too, and talk a little bit about, try to connect some of the ideas that you mentioned. First of all, first of all getting beyond this way of thinking in, in terms of majority and minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking about the community and the individual and the relationship between the community and the individual, not simply majority and minority. And also talking about your 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 comments just now about divisions in the Islamic world, uh, state divisions, as you mentioned, but also, of course, sectarian divisions mm-hmm. between pre- predominantly between uh, the Shi and the Sunni mm-hmm. uh, worlds, which also, the understanding of the relationship between those two is also influenced very much by perceptions of majority and minority. Definitely. And uh, so, and and even the way they conceive of the majority and the minority, right? Uh, from a Sunni perspective, the majority seems to be, the majority seems to be right by virtue of being the majority. Whereas mm-hmm. in a lot of, of Shi literature, it's the minority that really, you know, holds the truth or has the the truth. So even even their the religious relationship between Shi'is and Sunnis is often based on this majority minority uh, conception. Yes. And one of the wonderful things your book does is really, as I said, kind of get beyond that by equally considering, uh, really equally considering Shi and Sunni perspectives, um, looking at both modern and classical Shi and Sunni commentators on the Qur'an, on these ideas that you talk about within the Qur'an. Um, How important do you think this is as a model going forward for people doing other kinds of, uh, as as you know, uh, I'm someone who is a, a scholar of Shiism, so I often feel that some really important uh, ideas that developed in a very sophisticated way in the Shi'i tradition, don't always um, influence broader Muslim thinking, which I think is is a problem. So how, how do you think this methodology helps you in developing this initial movement toward an Islamic uh, political theory and an Islamic political theory that could have influence even beyond uh, the Islamic world? How does the incorporation the equal incorporation of Sunni and Shi perspectives help you with that? Yeah, it actually, uh, it helped me tremendously, uh, even from a personal perspective, because when you go into the Quran and you look at Quranic exegesis, 
you know, I use the Tabari and Al-Qummi from the classical uh, uh, Quranic exegetes, and I used um, Muhammad Abdu, Sayyid Muhammad Hussain Fadlallah, and Sayyid Qutb from the modern ones. You look at what they're writing and their commentaries on specific Quranic verses that I use specifically towards the Ummah, and you find lots of similarities. And you find more similarities among people, for example, I find lots of similarities between Muhammad Abdu and Sayyid Muhammad Hussain Fadlallah. Muhammad Abdu is Sunni, Sayyid Muhammad Hussain Fadlallah is Shi'i. But they're both from the modern time. So lots of similarities among them, their ideas, then between, for example, Sayyid Muhammad Hussain Fadlallah and Al-Qummi, who are both Shia, but they belong to different age periods. Okay? So just seeing that, and discovering that and reading about that changes your own perception about things and about this Sunni-Shi'i divide. I'm not saying that the Sunni-Shi'i divide does not exist or there's no merit in it. I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm saying. There is some differences, but the majority of, of, of the, of the majority is similarity, not the difference. And then when you go with this methodology, when you say, I'm going to read the Quran, I'm going to study the Quran and look at commentaries from both, you figure that out yourself. So I think it's very important that we as academics, we as scholars move beyond, you know, the, the, the superficialities of people who have agendas on the political level, on the religious level. We as scholars have this responsibility to move beyond that. And this is what I wanted to do. For me, it was self-exploration. It was more about I wanted to figure out what is the real difference. And also I want to show that it can be done, it's possible, and we can do it. And this will help solve lots of problems that are going on, you know, on right, from the ground level, from the bottom. I think it should be very healthy if we do that. Another thing is when the Quran invites us as a humanity, it invites Muslims and Christians and Jews and Sabians to come together and figure out common ways of living and figure out common interests and figure out better ways of dealing with the world. If it invites people from different religions to do that, how about us Muslims who believe in the same God and follow the same prophet and we have the same book? So I'm using Aristotle in my work, right? Yes. Who is from, you know, thousands of, 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 of years ago, right? And I don't know what his belief was. I'm using Aristotle and I'm finding lots of benefit in using Aristotle. I learn a lot from Aristotle. And this is another thing that I want to bring, you know, Islam and the West in dialogue with each other based on the Quranic, you know, inspiration and the Quranic invitation that learn from each other, you know, come together, understand each other. So if I'm doing this with Aristotle, I as a Muslim cannot do this between Sunnis and Shi'is. It's a pity if I can't do this. It's really pathetic, right? Yes, so, yes. Scholars, they, they, they discuss the, you know, uh, John Jack Rousseau, they discuss Habermas, they discuss John Rawls, they talk about it, but they are afraid of coming and talking about Sunni and Shia scholars. Why is that? What is the problem? I mean, just sit and think about it. It's ridiculous. So I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that it, people would 
you know, see something beneficial and something hopeful in the approach that I'm using and start using it. And I'm talking to Muslims specifically and also everybody else, like in general. Right. Well, thank you so much for that, Katrin. I guess I have one uh, one final question. I know you already talked about uh, what you want to do going forward, um, building upon this idea of, of the common good and uh, certainly... Uh, looking forward to to seeing your work on that. One uh, final question is because you, you mentioned, and I forgot to mention this too, one of the fascinating things about your book is the degree to which you employ um, Aristotle and Aristotelian um, political thought as well in conversation with uh, Islamic thought, both Sunni and, and Shi. And I'm wondering um, if you have any sense, I know your book is only very recently published. Do you have any sense for what the reception is, let's say, uh, among Muslims who uh, are either Sunni or Shi'i to sort of seeing this uh, issue addressed either in relation to Aristotle, which, as you say, is not certainly not foreign in, in Muslim intellectual circles, but also um, considering both Sunni and, and Shi perspectives? Are you hopeful about a kind of receptivity to this um, to this methodology? I'm very hopeful. You're the first one who addresses it. So I have given a, a number of talks about the book in more than one venue uh, among Muslim circles and in general to the Western audience. Uh, but I did not get that question. Nobody asked me about it. <laughs> Uh, I think they, they want to avoid it because they don't want to deal with it or they don't want to open sensitivities. I don't know. I mean, nobody asked me about it. You're the first one who brings it up. And I'm happy that you brought it up, you know? So I haven't, it hasn't, I don't know the reception among others, whether Sunni or Shiite so far, honestly, because it wasn't brought up, but I'm happy that you did bring it up. And what do you, what do you think, have you had any responses to uh, the book from people outside of Islamic studies specifically, even in conversations with colleagues and so on? Yeah, yeah. I had, I had some very, uh, thank, thankfully, very positive uh, feedback. I had uh, people telling me that this is very interesting. Um, I think it's a great contribution. They asked me also about the concept of sovereignty. They said, we need to, you need to deal with that if you want to extend or, you know, uh, expand this work. Mm -hmm. Another person said, you need to talk about the concept of jihad, for example, the concept of war uh, within this, you know, ummah, like uh, you need to deal with all these, you know, um, terms because they are important as, you know, you expand the work. So I've got some, you know, positive feedback and also positive, uh, constructive, um, you know, I would, I wouldn't say criticism, but constructive feedback that, you know, what I need to add to the work. So, so far, yeah. I also had somebody told me that if you, um, actually take the Quran out of the picture, and just talk about the ummah as a system, whether local or global system, it would be more attractive to the Western audience. Mm. Uh, but I said, I can't do that because that would be a lie. Right. Like literally I'm, I'm getting all these ideas from the Quran. Um, and I want actually people to start see the, seeing the Quran as not just 
something that is particular to Muslims. I mean, it's not a cult, right? It's a divine revelation. That's for everyone. So also seeing the Quran as very narrow and very limited and very specific, and it works within specific context, I think that's an erroneous and, and, and modern kind of understanding. I want people to see the Quran as of value, of, of ethics. And there's a difference, even in the Quran itself, I made this argument in my book, there's a difference between the Islamic paradigm and Muslims. Because Muslims are the people who follow the Islamic paradigm and they also practice the Sharia. They practice all the rules of Islamic Sharia. But you can be living within, you can be living within the Islamic paradigm and not be a Muslim. And this is what happened historically for, for centuries, that Jews and Christians and other people were living under the Islamic paradigm, meaning that they were benefiting and thriving within this Islamic ethics and moral values, right? Like the, this ummah, this understanding of pluralism, legal pluralism, the understanding of the human being, all of these things, they were thriving and living very well under the Islamic paradigm, but they were not Muslims. They were not following all aspects of the Islamic Sharia. So the Islamic Sharia is not just about the hijab and fasting and, and the hudud and all of that. The Sharia is much wider than this. There are values and ethics and, and much bigger things that the Sharia provides. And there are also the, the practice that only applies to Muslims. Obviously, the Muslims get a, a better deal because they're taking the whole package, right? Right. But you can still be as somebody who is not a Muslim and also benefits from that system and that paradigm very much. And people have done this for centuries. I completely agree. Uh, one of the points I often make when I talk to people about the Quran is that it does not just address itself to Muslims. Exactly. It addresses itself explicitly to human beings. And sometimes it addresses itself to people who are specifically non-Muslims, people who are uh, Jews or Christians or people of the book or, or atheists or everyone, everyone uh, or human and beings in general. And yes. I think it's the responsibility of Muslims also to say that and articulate that and make it known to everybody else. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we we don't want to keep it to us like, oh, it's just my book. No, it's not just our book. It's the book. It's 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 for everyone. Right. We need to make it clear. Maybe we're not making it clear enough. Maybe we're not talking about it enough to say that this is for everyone. Yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for being such a such a generous uh, guest with your responses and uh, and and so engaging. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Even though we've had many conversations before, we went into new areas um, uh, today. So I'm I'm very very happy to hear you uh, expand upon some of the important ideas and talk about some of the important ideas, but expand further on some of the ideas that you have in your book. I hope that uh, we will have the opportunity to read more of your work very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maria.